So we've been talking about lie number one. I thought we would talk about it for one meeting, and we, this is the third meeting. So uh, hopefully we can conclude today. Uh, and our series is called The Five Lies, and this is the first one. And <clears throat> this uh, is the idea that all existence is the product of time and chance. This worldview, I guess, ha also has a name we could call it philosophical materialism. Wow. Which just means that the material universe is all that there is. That all existence is explained in material terms. Well, I should say can be explained because it certainly isn't explained yet. <clears throat> Even if I I'm a person committed to this uh, sort of uh, view of the nature of things. So uh, in that respect, in that very respect, we can see that it is, a, it is something like a faith. It's a, it's a belief system. It's not, it's not uh, just a set of observed facts though it does like to sort of present itself as though it were a set of observed facts. That uh, if we apply the scientific method, we learn how, how the material universe operates, and that's all we're saying. Well, except that's not all you're saying. You're also saying that you think everything that can be explained can be explained in those terms. Uh, and so it's a little... Uh, uh, more philosophical than it often admits to being. Uh, anyway, so we uh, last time we talked about the top half of this handout I just gave you, which is applying our three rules for evaluating a worldview. The first rule is, is it comprehensive? That means, does it explain everything? Or are there some things that it apparently doesn't or can't explain? If it can't explain some things, then it's not comprehensive. Uh, now, obviously, we're making judgments here. Uh, we, you know, so there's some. We have to be humble about our judgments. We have to say we we don't. We also don't know everything, uh, and so. Nevertheless, if we, were, if we observe some things that seem to exist that can't be explained by this worldview, then we would say that's an argument against this worldview. It's not comprehensive. It's, there's things it doesn't cover. And so we uh, noticed five of these things in this particular case. <clears throat> the first was irreducible complexity. There are some systems that exist that seem to be interdependent and complex in such a way that it would be really hard to imagine how they could have developed incrementally. In other words, like we assume things develop in the process of natural evolution of things, this has to develop slowly, except this is so complex that some parts of it are dependent upon other parts that would have had to have developed sort of instantly and at the same time. 
And so it's too, it's hard to imagine uh, how such a system might have evolved in, on a sort of incremental, accidental way, which is typically what we understand when we understand the nature of evolution. It's sort of accidental. Some organism or some system uh, changes for some reason, and that change makes that that organism more effective or more able to survive, we would say. Uh, and then on that basis, that organism continues and reproduces and so on. Uh, sorry, I got to try not to just do the whole thing all over again. The second way we notice the lack of comprehensiveness is that in in nature itself, things appear to be coded. In other words, there's something you could call information that is in the system. So uh, certain universal physical constants. Uh, and <clears throat> now this is actually kind of a special case of item number one, by the way. So the universe appears to operate by certain numbers that have to be exactly what they are. <clears throat> and so it's hard to explain that in purely accidental time and chance terms. The third thing is we notice that a certain recognition of a, the spiritual nature of things has material benefits. In other words, religious people are healthier. That's one way of saying this. Uh, prayer seems to have an actual material effect. Uh, the fourth thing is the existence of moral agency. Human beings, we universally regard ourselves as persons. And what we mean when we say persons is a responsible moral agent someone who makes actual, real, determinative choices that have actual, real consequence for which we hold one another responsible. Well, it's really difficult for, to, to imagine the development of morality and moral agency in a, in a purely material world. Uh, now, people have imagined it, and it's not impossible to see how a certain morality might help the people who possess it to uh, survive and reproduce. So it's not, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, but our systems of, of ethics uh, stretch way beyond what anyone would call necessary for for survival, I guess you'd say. And it's hard to figure out how we get from uh, simple time and chance universe to a right and wrong universe. Uh, and so this is another area where there might be some deficiency in the 
explanatory merit of this view. <clears throat> then the, the last number, uh, number five on your list here, is similar to that, and that is that in in the human race, some kind of spiritual orientation is nearly universal. In fact, it seems to be the default that people have to graduate from that into some sort of uh, materialistic or atheistic frame of mind. It doesn't seem to be where we start. Um, and so this, this raises the question, if the materialist says, yeah, but we can't test and observe that, well, we maybe can invent some ways to test and observe it. But the question then is, well, why would we dismiss the spiritual realm just because it can't be tested by material tools? Um, you know, maybe our radio is not tuned to the right station. And then we say, maybe there's a thousand different broadcasts going on in the world. And I'm living in the 1950s Soviet Union or something where they only want me to listen to one. And so they, they sell me a radio that only tunes to one. And then I say, well, that must be the only one. Well, that's kind of what we're dealing with in this case, where it's a universal human experience to uh, identify certain aspects of our experience as spiritual or even supernatural. And I don't think we want to jump ahead to that explanation unnecessarily, but I also don't think we want to dismiss it unnecessarily. And so uh, we might ask, well, maybe you just need a better radio that can tune to that station. The second C that we looked at is, is it consistent? And I've sort of summarized what we, what we talked about last time here with two statements. <clears throat> And the question here is inconsistency is, does it contradict itself? Does it have any inherent or internal inconsistencies? So I have observed two here. First, philosophical materialism begins with a set of metaphysical beliefs that cannot be demonstrated in materialistic ways and means. It assumes that the real world is accessible to observation, for example. Uh, and so it, it begins with a certain faith. And I would argue all human knowledge begins with some kind of set of beliefs that can't be tested in any kind of scientific way. Uh, and so <clears throat> philosophical materialism has a faith and at the same time denies the necessity of having a faith. That's an internal inconsistency. Uh, 
philosophical materialism statement number two here requires being to arise from non-being. So you'll have statements like we quoted last time, uh, the universe exploded into being. Well, that is a nonsense statement if you just stop and think about it for a second, because it assumes the universe existed to do something before it had any being. So being came from nothing. Often folks with this worldview criticize, say, the Christian idea of creation because the Christian idea of creation is that God created the universe, what we call ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. He didn't have any raw materials that he used. He spoke it into being. But the problem here is that whatever your idea of the universe, sooner or later, it comes from nothing. And here, it sort of self-creates. Now, I can get around that problem by saying, well, maybe the material universe itself is the eternal existence. But then I have no accounting for that. Uh, so I either, I have a choice. I can say it went from not being to being with no sufficient cause, or it is the only thing that is self-existent. And then I think I've graduated into some sort of article of faith. I mean, I can't demonstrate that to be true repeated scientific experimentation. It just becomes a claim because something has to be eternal. And I think, okay, well, then now we're just picking our eternal thing. And why, why is this eternal thing better than this eternal thing, especially considering all those things we talked about in the comprehensive list? So uh, it has problems with consistency. Then the last C is, is it competent? Which means, is it something you could live by? Does it generate meaningful ethics? Does it really recognize human agency? So here's what I think. I think the materialist worldview, you can, I, I, I read a, really well thought out book by this uh, uh, Marxist ethics professor. <laughs> uh, and he, his book is, he's, his name is Peter Singer. His book is called Practical Ethics. And he taught uh, uh, biomedical ethics at first-rate universities. That was his career. I'm not sure he's still living. but um, And he develops an ethical system from scratch. And the thing he develops, and I think he makes a pretty good case that this is the only thing you could develop from scratch like this, is what you would call preference utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is the idea that our ethics are based on maximizing 
pleasure and minimizing suffering. That's, that's what utilitarian ethics are. And I think Christian ethics include that, but extend beyond that to something that is revealed by the nature and character of God. So it's not only that. Uh, <clears throat> but Christian ethics certainly call for reducing suffering and increasing benefit. In this uh, philosophical materialist point of view, utilitarian ethics are all you can have and about the best you can do. And there are certain problems with that ethical system. It sort of requires an omniscient supervisor because you cannot be relied upon to consider my interests adequately when you're making your ethical decisions and vice versa. So we need some kind of arbiter and we need that arbiter to know exactly what everyone would find beneficial and what everyone would find costly or consider to be suffering. And we need that supervisor to also be able to balance all of that perfectly in order to determine what would be the right thing for you to do. The best you can do is kind of guess at it. And maybe that's the best we can do and that's what we ought to do. Uh, but it's not a very comprehensive ethical system and it's got some real problems in terms of determining what is right and what is wrong. And it tends to default to who's in charge. And so, you know, who's making the rules? Now, utilitarian ethics are about the best we can do under this system, but also under this system, there's a real question as to why we need ethics at all. Why does a material universe need right and wrong? Us human persons might. We might want it. But the question is, why? Why do we? If this is the nature of things, how did this need ever arise? And so there's a, there's a problem there as well. I, I put three quotes here in the, uh, in the margin that I just kind of like. In Shakespeare, Hamlet says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And uh, I find that one of the problems with this materialistic worldview is it's, it's, it's highly reductive. In other words, it just leaves a lot of stuff out. Uh, and so I, to me, it seems a little bit deficient. Now, at, when I say that, I also want to say that doesn't mean science isn't really productive, because it is, obviously. Uh, and the application of this, uh, of the scientific method of discovering things has been extremely beneficial to humanity. 
Um, the problem is when we turn from that to because, because this is so fruitful, we deny the existence of other ways of knowing. And in my mind, that's when we get to Maslow's quote, although it's questionable whether Maslow really thought this up to begin with, but he says, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Because the scientific method was so fruitful in discovering things, we decided that's the only method we need, even though deciding that involved a lot of methods other than science. <clears throat> in other words, we know things a lot of different ways, not just the one way. And so we don't want to abandon the rest of the toolbox because the hammer works good in this, in this instance. The last one is something I say, which is one can be a great scientist and no good at all at the philosophy of science. There are certain TV scientists that I think are really in this category where they were really good scientists and then they tried to graduate into explaining what science does and they're really not very good at that. But they're really smart guys. And so they tend to be persuasive, and at the same time, uh, they're really just not thinking it through that well. Uh, should I name a couple of names? Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think are both kind of in this category where when they tried to start philosophizing about science, they didn't do that good of a job. I would recommend a guy named Michael Polanyi for this task, a scientist turned philosopher who I think did a good job, but his stuff is not as easy to get. Um, <clears throat> so now, all that's review so far, so today's lesson. <laughs> the third step in our process, the first step was understand what this idea is about, the second step is apply these three uh, evaluating rules. Is it comprehensive? Is it consistent? Is it competent? The third step is, well, what do we say? What is a biblical Trinitarian worldview as it relates to this? And so my first, the first thing here is just a list of things that I think a biblical Trinitarian worldview does account for well. First of all, it accounts for the personal nature of things. Now, we should start by saying maybe it accounts for these things by God. So it holds a certain idea of God, and that idea of God accounts for these things. Why is the universe personal. Now we might look out at the planets in outer space or dig up some rocks or look at some trees and think, well, there's nothing especially personal about that. So what do I mean when I say the universe is personal? I mean, it obviously includes persons. You and me are standing here having a conversation and each of us made a decision to be here this morning. And we make consequential decisions. We are persons. 
How does that arise? The biblical account for how that arises is the eternal thing is a trinity of persons. The thing that is eternal in the biblical worldview is God. And God is an eternal, God, the, the creed says, eternally exists in three persons. One God, one being, three persons. Well, that's hard to understand, of course, but it does account very well for the personal nature of things, for the relational nature of human existence. I would want to say the Bible even sort of claims a personal nature for the created material world. The Bible has creation groaning for certain events to take place. Now, that could be entirely metaphorical, or maybe it's not. <laughs> but in any case, uh, the biblical, the Trinity, as the eternal creator of all things, is a pretty good explanation for why the all things, all the created things, also have persons. Of course, in the Bible, human beings are persons, and so are angelic beings. Uh, it also accounts for the historical nature of things, the fact that what we are involved in the universe is not just a string of material causes and effects, but it's also a story of personal causes and effects. A story of relationships and the rise of this or that king and the fall of this or that system and the track of a, story, a historical set of events of consequence and meaning. Well, that leads to the other thing I think the biblical Trinitarian worldview accounts for better than a materialistic view, is the purposeful nature of things. And here I have purposeful and parenthetically meaningful. In other words, things have meaning because they fulfill purpose. And if you say, what is it for? Well, in the philosophical materialism, there is no answer to that question. Well, there is an answer. The answer is nothing. If you say, what is the purpose of the universe? It's an empty set. It doesn't have any particular purpose. Because it doesn't have any particular purpose, it doesn't have any particular meaning. The uh, existential philosophers were really good at noticing this and they all end up, end up killing themselves because they, they figure out their life has no meaning. But the, what they recommended was, well, it doesn't have any, so give it some. <laughs> Which is sort of this act of denial. Necessary act of denial. 
They would say your life needs to have meaning, but there is no meaning. So invent one. And then these are the same guys who invented this sort of moral standard of authenticity. Be yourself. Invent yourself. Well, that seems like really a sort of supreme expression of what Satan said to Adam and Eve. But uh, be yourself. Invent yourself. Be true to yourself even though there is no yourself to be true to. So the way we get meaning in a philosophical materialist point of view is we make it up. Okay. Well, <laughs> in my view, that leads directly to the question, why do you need to make it up? Why do we need to lie to ourselves about our purpose and meaning in life if there isn't any? And I think, well, there's a reason why, because there is purpose and meaning, and we are built with a need for it. As Augustine said, you know, uh, the soul is not satisfied until it finds its satisfaction in God. Or something like that. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm quoting him with accuracy. So, a Trinitarian, a biblical worldview, a, a worldview with a personal creator, there's no trouble finding meaning in that. It's the meaning he gives it. The purpose for which he made it. And so uh, the biblical worldview does have a source of purpose and therefore a source of meaning in the nature of things. And of course, this also leads to a pretty thoroughgoing explanation of the moral and ethical nature of things. Why is there right and wrong? And what is right and what is wrong? In the biblical worldview, we're not called upon to just figure that out by reducing suffering. It's a revealed, inscripturated thing. In other words, the God who is the creator has a righteous character, and his righteous character has been elaborated in his law. And in his law is the revelation of what you might call absolute ethical standards. <clears throat> so there's a good account for how did we get to moral and ethical standards. The last thing I have here is that this biblical worldview accounts, I think, better for the beauty of things. <laughs> Why does even a hardcore atheist have a religious experience when he stands next to Niagara Falls? 
I used to love watching uh, surfer movies. And I don't mean like Beach Blanket Bingo, those movies. I mean like documentaries about surfing. I loved watching these because these guys, I don't know, how do you get the life of a professional surfer? I wish I'd have known how to get that life when I was 10 because I might have I might have gone for it. But these guys play on top of the power of nature. And they universally call it a spiritual experience. Every last one. Every, you cannot watch one of these surf documentary movies that doesn't mention the fact that surfing is a spiritual experience. And I think, yeah, that's right. These guys, they don't know what they're in contact with, but they know they are in contact with something that's more significant than just the material energy of a wave. They're connecting to something, like for real, and they know it. There's a aesthetic beauty in it. Why do we enjoy music? What on earth? How on earth would you explain that in pure materialistic terms? The only possibility is, well, we enjoy music because when we played music, or when we made music together, we became more effective hunters, and then we were better able to survive long enough to reproduce. And I think, really, is that all there is to music? Then why aren't we all still banging drums, singing around the campfire? How, why do we have Mozart, where this idea is developed into... This crazy, elaborate system of things. Uh, why do we have the blues? Well, maybe it's helping us survive long enough to reproduce. All right. I think there's more to it than that. Why do we appreciate a, a great painting or the presentation of a play. Why is one of our largest industries the production of plays for everyone to watch? To enjoy some presentation of some story made up. Sometimes imagining whole worlds that don't exist. Well, I just find it, I just find a materialistic explanation of the universe to be not accounting for that very well. But a biblical explanation of the universe accounts for that very well. Because we were created to engage richly in the creation around us. To see the beauty of it. To create beauty of our own.
Well, I wanted to conclude all this by looking at these three passages of Scripture and answering some questions about, especially aimed at the argument from design for the existence of God. Now, we're sort of returning to more simple terms at this point. <clears throat> so I have this question. Does the Bible support an argument from design for the existence of God? In case you're un unfamiliar, this is the idea that the natural world appears to have been designed. In fact, this argument says certain aspects of it really look like they were designed, like they have a purpose, and that purpose was invested in their structure and their very nature. Uh, so, does the Bible agree with this argument? Well, I'm going to read Romans 1, 19. Well, I have to start with verse 18 because it's in the middle of the sentence. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by un their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? What he's saying is human beings in their fallen condition suppress the truth. What truth? He goes on. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. If we look at Psalm 19, we have another statement of this same idea. The heavens, in this case this means the sky, <laughs> declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That really means there's no language in which this can't be heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy, rising from the ends of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So I went past where I, the reference here, but the heavens declare the glory of God. The nature of God, the existence of God can be seen in the things he has made. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, 
This is uh, where uh, Paul is in Athens. He says uh, to the men of Athens, he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So the question is, does the Bible support an argument from design for the existence of God? I guess I'd say yes. Does the Bible anticipate widespread acceptance of this argument? That's a more complicated question. In other words, if you read just those three texts that we just read, does the Bible anticipate that people will recognize God's existence on the basis of their observation of the things he's made? I think it's more complicated at this stage, isn't it? I think the answer is, yeah, that's how you have to say it. Uh, yeah, the Bible expresses widespread acknowledgement of the existence of some God. <laughs> In fact, when Paul gets to Athens, he notices that they've already observe the existence of some unknown God, and he's going to identify the unknown God, who happens to be the one who made them and everything else. And so he's right nearby. You might be able to find him. I also think, though, that the Bible states emphatically in that text in Romans that people, since Adam and Eve sinned, universally suppress this knowledge. I also think the Bible teaches that, uh, well, you can tell there's a God. This is in the next question. According to these passages, what has God made obvious about himself in creation? Well, I think you could say his existence and that he's God. His divine nature, Romans said. Is that all there is to know of this God? No. <laughs> is that all the is that even all the most important stuff to know 
about this God? The answer is no. So I think the Bible says, well, everybody should know we're responsible to the Creator because there is a Creator. If you look around at the world, you can tell it was created. It's not an accident. You can tell by looking at it. What you can't tell is a whole lot about the one who made it, except that he's enough of a something to have made this, which is really, well, we can't see the edge of it. It's really an amazing thing he's made, so he must be more than this, and so he must be, well, we could think of a few things. Maybe he's omniscient, omnipotent, certainly. We can tell some stuff about him. Can we tell that he's a trinity? Maybe not. Can we tell that he's the Father, Son, the Spirit, who tells the story of the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration of humanity? Mm, probably not by looking at the trees. But this God also is a God who has revealed himself in language and history. So this God goes beyond revealing himself in creation and reveals himself specifically in interacting with the things he's made, especially us humans. This is a God who shows up and in the form of the burning bush speaks directly to Moses and then shows up a few more times and speaks directly to Moses some more times. This is a God who, in his spirit, inspires the writing of the scripture. This is the God who, the second person of this triune God, is made to be a man. And the scripture says, well, the scripture says that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Apparently, the God who is God is a God who wants us to know him and so has intentionally revealed himself way beyond the scope of what we can observe in nature. The purpose, in Romans at least, of the revelation of God in nature is to, is to remove any claim of non-responsibility from any human anywhere at any time. Because you can tell, by looking at the stuff he's made, you can tell there is a God that you are responsible to. <clears throat> so the question is, where do you see these things? And this question is mostly aimed at just encouraging you to observe the created universe as a created thing. And then this question is, where do you see the divine 
in the things you see? Where do you see God in the created things? I think you could look at the stars and go, we talked about the guy standing next to Niagara Falls or the guy standing next to the Grand Canyon or the guy standing at the top of Mount Everest or uh, people all over the world everywhere having this experience of the overwhelming beauty of the created world. I also think since I started scuba diving, the you can look the other way. Instead of looking at the magnificent magnitude of it, you can look at the magnificent microscopicity of it, whatever you, whatever the word is that is. The, I, you know, I'm, I'm diving one day and I see this little piece of fluff on the side of a coral and it looks circular. So I thought, oh, I'm going to take a picture of that. So I spent about 20 minutes taking a picture of that. And when I look at the picture, I see stuff I could not see with my eyes when I was there. When I look at the picture, it's this ridiculous creature. Uh, it's some little kind of hydroid thing. And it's got little balls and little tentacles with little windy things at the end. It's like this flower. It's like this amazing, and it's an animal it's hanging there on the side of the coral, waiting for some plankton to come by so it'll grow. I mean, what? I think, oh, so you can see the intricate design. I mean, this thing, is, I, I cannot fathom anyone looking at a picture of this thing and going, yeah, that was an accident. Now, I'm already convinced of this point of view, so, you know, there you have that. But uh, to me, that sort of spectacular beauty, oh, and that's the other thing. When I look at this thing, this crazy little tiny animal, like he could fit, the whole thing could fit on half of my pinky nail. <clears throat> when I look at that, I don't just think it's amazing. I think it's beautiful. Like, I want a picture of it. I think you could put a picture of that on your wall and everyone would go, oh, that's lovely. It gives us that sense of aesthetic satisfaction. There's a connection between me and this critter. Well, in my view, that is really, really hard to account for without God, without the Creator who instills His own aesthetic sense in us and in the creation He's made for us to live in. So for me, this biblical understanding of the world is way more satisfying. And I, I actually kind of feel a little sorry for people who think of the universe 
as some sort of mechanism that just happened to accidentally happen. I think, hmm, that's less of a universe than the one I live in. Well, okay, that's, that's our stopping point. So I'm going to stop and ask you if you have any questions or points of discussion or any such. I was just thinking about is this kept coming? Uh, the, the verse that says every knee shall bow and every tongue Yes. That's like the Bible announcing that there is a God. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, the whole Bible just takes it for granted that there's a God, right? And the, the point of that text is sooner or later, everyone will acknowledge this reality because it is the reality of things we Another thing that is uh, in my mind when you were talking about evolution hmm. and the design of nature yeah. It's how, how plants can absorb the light from the sun and transform it into energy mm -hmm. and food for them. Right. Right? And, you know, like, there has to be a design because if it was by chance and we were just evolving life as evolving, then we should do that because we should be able to do it. It makes yeah. sense, so, in, in a straight line in way Well, and I think, you know, in that particular instance, I, you know, I think you have to know the particulars better than I do. But to me, that seems like one of these sort of irreducibly complex systems. In other words, the plant had to already be able to do that to develop the ability to do that. It, so it's... To me, that might be used as an example of that idea of it's too complex to have developed slowly, or because this complex system depends on this complex system, they they had to they had to evolve coincidentally, like they had to both happen at the same time in order for this other thing to happen. And that, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think, I don't, I can't say that for sure about photosynthesis, but it seems like it to me. But, uh, you know, people who study, like one of the best books in this whole area is a book called Darwin's Black Box by a guy named Michael Behe. He's a microbiologist, like he studies cell structures. <laughs> living cells and his whole book is about how what's going on in every cell of every living creature is impossibly complex to have developed in a evolutionary model now the way the evolutionary model believers account for this is well just give it more time and more accidents or more happy accidents. And I think, okay, well, I suppose, you know, but to me, it's the same logic that says, 
Well, because the universe is quote-unquote infinite, then there's got to be another men's breakfast exactly like this happening somewhere else in some other part of the universe, or except maybe it's a slightly different version of this. I, you know, and I think, okay, well, this seems like really fruitless speculation to me. And so the idea of, well, we solve the problem of complexity by allowing more time. I, it's hard for me to get any intellectual satisfaction. That argument backfires on them very quickly, though, because of the fossil evidence. Uh, if that truly was happening, we would see a series of fossils as it evolved, and they don't have those huge gaps. Yeah. They go with those fossils actually. Right. Yeah. And I would expect it to. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, so that there's, there's plenty of problems. And what I'm, what I'm trying to identify is something like what are the sort of basic root philosophical problems with this framework of thinking. And what you're talking about is an evidence problem in a system that's claims to be based on evidence. Uh, and so, okay, well, where's, where's the evidence? Now there's lots of speculative accounting for those gaps. I, I personally don't find it very satisfactory. And it's another case where, okay, scientists are, scientists might be really good at doing the science. But they're not that good at putting that in a broader philosophical context. So they, they tend not to be great philosophers. And, you know, you can't expect them to do everything. So, Doug, given all this obvious complexity and, and the need for an explanation as in a creator or designer, could you say to a non-believer that your belief in evolution takes a lot more faith than my belief in God. You could say that. I don't really like to say it that way because that tends to say that faith is not a good way to find things out, which I don't agree with. So I would say your, the faith you exercise to believe that is, is relatively faulty. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's more about, it's more about what is the object of your faith than whether you're using, nobody ever found out anything without exercising faith. But don't they disagree with the need for faith? Like they, they tend to say, yeah, and that's partly why this is maybe a good argument rhetorically, because it says, and I think it's a good thing to point out to everybody that every time you learn anything, every time you engage in the human act of knowing, you exercise faith. There is no other way to do it. And, uh, by the way, this is the insight of the guy I mentioned, Michael Polanyi, who was 
a scientist and a philosopher, not a Christian, but the and how what his belief about the Bible is, I don't know. But his, what he would say is the practice of science is the practice of faith seeking understanding. So I believe something to be true. Can I invent some sort of test that will show whether I, it's true or not? And so one of the things he uh, elaborates, his book is called Personal Knowledge, and it's basically a philosophy textbook. And he's, he, what he's arguing is, look, anytime you go about the business of knowing anything, you start in faith. Here's the most simple element of that faith. You believe you can figure this out. So the most essential element of the faith of science is if we do science, we'll figure stuff out. If we, if we construct the right experiment to demonstrate the validity of our hypothesis, well, we, why did we come up with that hypothesis? A hypothesis is a proposal made in faith. And so we say, well, we're going to find out. Now, this faith also has some, is open to being shown false, right? As all our knowledge should be all the time. It could be shown to, that I was wrong. Uh, and so, but the whole process is, is the process of saying, well, I'm going to proceed from a certain set of belief. And I, I start with the belief. So Augustine had this insight, and he sort of stole it from Isaiah, actually, who was the first guy to coin this expression, faith seeking understanding. Now, obviously, Isaiah was using this term with reference to God. Augustine was broadening it, and Polanyi is saying, look, even when we're doing science, that's what's happening. Um, so, yes, I think it can be helpful to people to point this out. Uh, but I don't like to point it out in a way that disparages faith. It's just as though I wanted to say... Knowing something by faith means you don't really know it. Because I don't believe that. Because I don't think you know anything except by faith. But when you say that the scientific faith leads to the hypothesis, isn't it observation? Yeah, so the question then is... I have a belief based on what I observed. Mm, what I'm saying is you had a belief before you went to observe anything. You believed, for example, that this set of observations would be a good way to test your theory. In other words, why did you decide to look at this? You see what I'm saying? In other words, in the scientific community, 
well, there's a community and some new PhD candidate says, I want to look at this. I want to answer this question with this hypothesis in mind. And the rest of the scientific community, his supervisors, say, eh, let's, let's get a better question. And he has, to re he has to refine his question. He has to think again. Sometimes they say, never mind that, do this. And then he has to do that instead of what he thought he wanted to do in the first place. But isn't that open for students? Well, because a real scientist isn't bound by anybody else's. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is because he wants to get published. Well, they're welcome to respond, but they don't tell him advance whether he should do this study or not do this study. Maybe not, but it's, but at a, and you're right, at a certain level, you're in the committee, and so you can self-determine what's a valid question, but either way, the, the, there's a determination made of what is a valid question. Now, the other thing is that he is free to reject all of their suggestions. And there have been scientists who have fought the general trend, the common sure. belief, yes. and have been proven years correct. later that they were correct. That's true. And that, and that does occur in the practice of science, but even in that case, the, the more general point that I'm really trying to make here is someone determines this is worth looking into. Starts with a belief. And this isn't, and that is a, that's an that's an act of faith. Not it, what determines a, a valid question is. We think that's a good question, and that's a personal, engaged, responsible. I gotta decide whether it's worth the resources. I gotta decide whether I'm gonna get banished by my scientific community or what, I gotta weigh all these personal factors. There's, there's no question that that is true, particularly in academic yeah. sphere. Okay. But it is not the sine qua non of science per se. I'm not trying to say it is. All I'm saying is all, all scientific inquiry begins with some proposal of faith. It is, it's not just we're walking around stumbling on observations. This is the question. Is, is it, in fact, we select what to observe because we think a certain set of observations will be fruitful in determining the validity of the hypothesis. I think the only real application of faith here is on the part of the scientist that the pursuit of the question will produce information right. of value. Right. That's, that's, that's my point. That's exactly my point. And, and that this particular design of the experiment will, will be effective in that pursuit. Right. Right. And so that this is all I'm saying is that that that's uh, 
the direction of belief. In other words, the very basic belief of all science is the world created, or, or the world, the universe around us, the material universe, is subject to scientific investigation. And so, now, of course, in... Don't you think that in, in being given brains, we were expected to believe that? I'm sorry? Don't you think that in being given brains, Absolutely, yeah. 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 And I'm not, I'm not saying anything that invalidates science in any way. Please, if, I, if anybody's heard me to think, I don't like science, that's just not it. All I'm saying is uh, that in the practice of science, it's exactly that. It's, the, it's a personal engagement with the real thing around us. Well, in philosophy, whether the thing around us is real or not is subject to question. So, I personally, I think that's ridiculous, but in science, we've adopted, and we can't do science if we don't adopt the idea that the real world around us is real and is probable. In other words, we can figure it out by conducting experiments of various kinds. We can understand the cause and effect relationship between this medicine and this cure, for example. Uh, or we can understand the disease process that happened to require it in the first place. Well, if we don't at least believe that, we're not going to bother with it at all. In fact, in the good old days, when we all just believed in magic, guess what we didn't try to do? Figure out medicine. Because disease was just the judgment of some god. So it was a good thing we decided to set aside the god explanation at least a little. But then you don't want to say, because setting it aside to do this experiment proved to be useful that we want to entirely set it aside. And in, in the modern mindset, that's effectively what we've done. We said, because we've got a hammer, this looks like a nail. And because science is so effective, it must be the only way to really figure out anything. There and, are, there are interesting people who suggest that as the scientists probe, they reveal the majesty of God. Yeah. And in fact, when we started doing science, that was the, the goal. <laughs> you read those guys like uh, Galileo, even, who was rejected by the religious people, but still. Uh, or... Uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Francis Bacon, I want to say. These guys did science to the glory of God. You know, they, they were, the whole idea was if we, if we don't just call this thing that happens some kind of miracle, we might be able to figure out more about what's happening. We might be able to explain things in a way that's useful and good and plus we're going to 
we're, we're going to be like me looking at this critter on the side of the coral where we have the experience of the glorious nature of nature. And science, in, in, at least in early science in the Western world, was kind of had that purpose in mind. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this good time together. Thanks for this great food. Thank you for these men. Good fellowship that we enjoy together. Lord, we, uh, we just thank you for being present with us. Lord, we thank you for the rich understanding of nature that we can have if we understand it as created. And Father, we, uh, we just pray that you would go with us as we go into whatever we're doing the rest of the day. And uh, we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.